0: Let's open them to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. If you please find uh, in your Bibles Joshua, chapter 6. In 1802, President Thomas Jefferson uh, signed legislation that established the military outpost in the school at uh, West Point, the United States Military Academy at West Point, and the location of West Point is really an interesting place because George Washington considered that to be the most strategic and most important place in America. He, in, that, in 1778, he ordered that a fort would be built there, and President Washington or General George Washington at that time uh, used that as his headquarters. And although the British tried many different times to overtake the fort there in West Point, they were never able to do that. George Washington had ordered that a 150-foot chain be stretched across the Hudson River to control the river traffic. And has anybody here ever heard of Benedict Arnold before? Well, one of the places that Benedict Arnold try, tried to uh, allow the British to invade when he betrayed the United States was West Point. But as I said, the, uh, the British were never able to take that strategic place. Well, West Point, of course, is the place where uh, many of America's greatest generals were educated. Robert E. Lee, Ulysses Ulysses S. Grant, uh, John J. Pershing, Dwight Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur, uh, even George Custer were all educated at West Point. Well, one of the things that they do at West Point, naturally, is they teach their students and future military leaders, they teach them all about military strategy. And if you wanted to figure out a military strategy, the very best way that you could conquer the land of Canaan, the book of Joshua would be the place that you would go because Joshua outlines here uh, a perfect strategy for taking over the land of Canaan. In World War I, in fact, a British general by the name of Edmund Allenby used Joshua's strategy to liberate Palestine from, from a foreign occupation. What he did, he drove into Palestine from the west, just as Joshua did. He drove to a high road in the mountains that separated the north from the south. He took command of that high road, thus splitting the enemy. And then he went to the south first of all, conquered the opposition there, then he traveled to the north and also conquered that opposition. So he used exactly the same strategy that Joshua used. But there's one thing that Edmund Allenby could not do when he conquered or when he uh, liberated Palestine. He could not take a fortified city like Jericho in the same way that Joshua did. In fact, if we were to lay out Joshua's strategy in a military class at West Point, if they had laid out his strategy, Joshua would have been a laughing stock, probably would have laughed him out of the room. They couldn't duplicate what Joshua did. Well, tonight we're going to read about this, Joshua's plan, the plan that was given to him. we're going to use that as the background for the sermon tonight about how God works with us in spiritual battles. So let's stand, if you would, please, as we read God's Word tonight. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Then we'll skip down and read verses 15 through 17. Verse number 1 says, Now Jericho... Was straitly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall come past the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat. And the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Now let's go down to verse number 15 to see what happens. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, "'Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live.'" She and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word tonight. Uh, Help us, Lord, as we think about spiritual battles and what we have to do to fight in the way that you'd have us to. Help us to apply what we read here uh, from these scriptures to our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I said just a moment ago that if Joshua had been at West Point and they laid out the battle plan that he would use to take Jericho, most likely he would have been laughed out of the room. The truth of the matter is that what Joshua devised and the way that he would overtake the city was not, in fact, his plan. If you remember... Uh, In last week's lesson, we were talking about the end of the fifth chapter, and Joshua was out surveying the walls of Jericho. Perhaps he was thinking about how he would take the city. I think that he was praying when he did. He was probably trying to figure all of this out and to devise some way, some battle plan that he would use when he was met by a person that he didn't know, didn't recognize. And this man had a sword drawn in his hand, and he was standing in front of Joshua. So Joshua went up to talk to him, and he said, Are you for us, or are you against us? And the man said, Well, I am the captain of the Lord's host. And I believe that that was a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had come to Joshua to give him the battle plan that he would use. Now, I think he was there to tell Joshua that there was that mighty, angelic army that was out there, and it was this army that was going to knock down the walls of Jericho. And most Bible expositors agree that when Jesus appeared to Joshua, it wasn't just for the purpose of giving him confidence, but in fact, he gave them this very battle plan that they would use. And it was a very unusual battle plan because it didn't include any ramps to be built up to the walls of the city to try to overcome it. There were no battering rams that were part of the strategy to knock down the gates of the city. Certainly there were no howitzers and no uh, F-14s and smart bombs. They didn't have any of that. But instead, a very unusual battle plan was used. God said, you're going to march around the city. You're going to be quiet as you do. There's going to be circular marching as you go around and then we're going to blow at the ram's horns. The people are going to shout and the walls will fall down. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Well, tonight I want to give you five lessons that we can learn from the Jericho experience. The first lesson I think that we can learn is that you need to keep your mouth shut and your ears open. There's a lot of us in here tonight that need to learn that lesson. Keep your mouth shut and keep your ears open. Now, we've just read about this battle plan in verses 1 through 5. And we saw there that that Jericho was buttoned up. It's locked down. And that's because the people of the city had heard about how the children of Israel had crossed the, the Jordan River. And they were terrified by this because they thought that the Jordan River at flood stage would be an effective barrier to keep the children of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River away from them. But here now they find out that the people have actually crossed the river. When the priests that were bearing the Ark of the Covenant stepped into those waters, the waters parted, the river stopped flowing, and the water backed all the way up in, into the Jordan Valley. And then those children of Israel, they marched through the river on dry ground, and they were sort of hanging around there menacingly until God gave them the order, now it's time to go take the city. And so all of these Jerries in Jericho, they knew that something was going to happen, and they were terrified by it. Well, we would expect that when Israel began to march around the the city, that there would be a lot of commotion that would take place. There would be a lot of shouts. uh, The clanking of armor would be heard. You would hear the generals of the Israelite people shouting out their orders, getting everybody ready, pumping them up to, to go and take the city. But instead, there was nothing but an eerie silence. Not a word was spoken. No noise was made at all. And it was all because of the instructions that are given here in verse number 10. If you look at that, please, it says, And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I bid you shout, then shall ye shout. And don't you think that would have been pretty difficult? Here you have thousands of people out there marching around the city. No doubt that... After about a couple of days of marching, the people upon the walls of Jericho began to taunt the children of Israel as they're marching around the city. They began to shout obscenities at them. They hurl all kinds of insults. They speak against their God. Now, for a couple of days, everybody was probably pretty silent because, as I said, they were terrified and they watched the people march around. But, but after a couple of days, they see, well, they're not trying to breach the walls. Uh, they keep on marching. They haven't found a way that they can get in. So it looks here that nothing's going to happen. They can't figure it out. They can't figure out how to get, get in. So they begin to laugh at them and they taunt them. Hey, what's the matter, boys? You fellows afraid to fight? You're marching around the city. Have you marched around enough to discover there aren't any gates that have been left unlocked? There's no way that you can get over these walls. They're too high. They're too strong. You can't conquer this city. And they're saying, hey, fellows, do you think that we ought to be afraid of you and this silly battle plan that you have? Marching around, Oh, we're terrified. We're scared to death. Watch the big bad Israelites march around the city of Jericho. Well, but Israel kept marching. But they kept quiet. Six days they marched around. Twelve trips around the city and they didn't make a sound of any kind. Uh, That would be hard to do. That would be hard for anybody in here to do. I mean, most of us, we're too busy talking. Uh, We don't stop long enough to listen to anything. We're not going to wait all this this time that they're waiting to, to to hear something said. We've got to talk right now. We've got to express our opinions. We've got to let everybody know what we're thinking. But not these children of Israel. You know, we have a generation of complainers today, and we will not sit silently and wait for the Lord to speak to us in order that we can get the, the answer that God wants to give us in the way that he wants to go about helping us to feed our enemies. So most of us are ready to talk, and we simply don't know when it's time to stay quiet. Well, God has a plan for us, and God wants us to stop all the noise, take a little bit of time to listen, and see what he has to say. But most of us, uh, we, we really, we're, we're just ready to forge ahead. We, we step out there and do what we're going to do without talking to God and ask him, asking Him what He wants for our lives. Now, some of us as Christians, we, we really are concerned about prayer. We believe that we ought to pray. We've got this big obligation that's hanging over us all the time. We've got to pray. We've got to pray. But all the time that we're praying, we've already got our plan in place. We already know what we're going to do. So we don't stop to listen to what God says. We just forge ahead with the predetermined plan. And what God wants us to do is to keep our mouth shut for a little while and just listen to what he has to say. And if you're talking all the time and you're carrying on with your own plans instead of listening to God, you're not going to hear him when he speaks. Now, there's an interesting thing uh, that's spoken of in the, in the 46th Psalm. In, 40, in Psalm 46, verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46 is where Martin Luther took the words for that great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. And this was Luther's favorite psalm. Whenever he was discouraged, he would go right here to the 46th Psalm. And in verse number 7 of that Psalm, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The Lord of hosts is with us. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said to Joshua? He said, I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Now, Martin Luther recorded those words, if you remember, as Lord Sabaoth. We talked about that last week, the Lord of hosts. But here in this very same psalm, David says, Be still and know that I am God. Well, I'm sure that Joshua knew they could be quiet. They don't have to answer their enemies. The Lord Sabbath, he's the one that will answer for them. So very soon those walls would fall down. Joshua says, You'll be able to talk all you want. You can shout all you want then because God is going to give you the victory. And so they were quiet and they listened to what God had to say. God says, I will be exalted among the heathen. And all of Canaan will know that there is a God in Israel. Now, if we're still and we listen, God will exalt us. And this is what God did for Joshua. In the 27th verse of this same chapter, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noise throughout all the country. So this laughing stock commander didn't really turn out to be a laughing stock after all. So that's the first lesson that we learn. Learn to keep your mouth shut and your ears open because God may be speaking and you don't want to miss what God has to say. Now the second lesson that we learn from this is to always follow your instructions exactly. Now in chapter 5, Joshua's looking over the city And as I said, perhaps he's thinking about about a battle plan. Maybe he was thinking about some inspiring speech that he would give to the troops just before they go into battle. Maybe he would say some words similar to what George Patton said. Patton said, every man is scared in his first battle. If he says he isn't, he is a liar. The real hero is the man who fights even though he is scared. So Joshua may have been planning something like that to tell the troops... Well, when Joshua came back to the camp that night, I'm sure that the soldiers were very anxious about this. They were confident and they were thinking, tomorrow we're going to march. Tomorrow we're going to fight. We're going to go out there and we're going to have Canaanites for lunch. And so they're sharpening their swords, shining up their armor. The marines in the group, they're blackening their faces and spit-polishing their tattoos. And all those marines there, they're saying, Semper Fidelis, marines! And just like all Marines, they couldn't speak Latin, so they had no idea what that meant. But they—they they were going to. But they said it anyway. But but here they are. They're all getting ready. Uh, it's been forty years that they've been marching in the wilderness, and they're waiting here. They're ready to go knock down some walls. They're going to tear something up. You know, I was watching a television show the other night, and there was a fellow on a Marine base, and he wanted to do some target practice. So he went up to the, to the desk sergeant there, and he asked for some, some weapons. He said, I want you to give me some shotguns and some grenades. And the desk sergeant said, well, that's an awful lot of firepower for target practice. He said, I know, I know. I just get the urge to blow something up every now and then. Well, that's what these people are like. They just had the urge to blow something up. But here Joshua comes back, and he says, here's the plan, fellas. We're going to march around the city, and then we're coming back to the camp. And all of them are thinking, yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go up there, we're going to march around the city, get a good look at it. Then we're going to come back to camp and get all the weapons ready. We're going to go back, we're going to sneak back at night, we're going to take the city. Joshua says, no, that's not what we're going to do. No, we're going to return to the camp and we're going to get a good night's sleep. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to return to the camp, get a good night's sleep, we're going to get up in the morning, we'll be all fresh and ready to go, all rested up, and then we're going to go knock down those walls. And Joshua said, No, we're going to go out there and we're going to march around the city again. And then we're going to come back and we're going to get a good night's sleep. And then we're going to go out there third day, and we're going to march around the city again. And we're going to come back and we're going to get a good night's sleep. And these men, they're wondering about this. Now, now is that all we're going to do? And Joshua says, no, actually, that's not all we're going to do. We're going to keep marching. We're going to do it for six days. Then we're going to go out there the seventh day, and we're going to march around the city six times, and then we're going to march around it one more time just for good measure. Well, you know, studying the archaeological ruins of Jericho, it would have taken them about two hours to march around the city. From where they were camped in Gilgal, that was a one-hour walk. So each day that they're going to go up there and walk around Jericho, marching there, walking around the city, marching back, is four hours of marching every single day. And they did that for six days. On the seventh day, there was 15 hours of marching before the city walls ever came down. Well, after 15 hours of marching, who's got enough energy to fight? I mean, who's going to go into a battle at that time? Well, it's a good thing that God was going to fight this battle for them because they could not do this even after 15 hours of marching and letting God do it. They're going to be a tired people. But God says, I'm going to take care of everything for you. You just be ready to go. You do exactly as I say. And so that's what the children of Israel did. They went up there and they marched around the city. They followed God's instructions exactly. Six days they marched just like he said. The seventh day they went they marched around six times then marched around the seventh time and they followed the orders exactly and that's when the walls came tumbling down. Well what do we learn from that? Well what we learn is that we're to follow God's word exactly even when it doesn't make sense. Now faith is not about making sense anyway. If you think about it it makes no sense at all for me to believe that a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago has the ability to wash my sins away. That makes no sense at all. But it's still true. Human wisdom's never going to figure that out, but it's true. It makes absolutely no sense for me to give 10% of my income to the Lord and still be able to live here in Sonoma County. That doesn't make any sense. Your accountant's not going to be able to figure that one out for you. It doesn't make sense, but it's still true. It doesn't make any sense that when things are really going bad in my life, when I'm being ridiculed for my faith, nobody likes me because I'm a Christian, it makes no sense at all for me to have joy in my heart to love serving the Lord, to count it a blessing, to suffer for God's name, it makes no sense at all that that is the very thing that brings joy and peace and happiness and contentment to my life in the very best way imaginable. It makes no sense at all, and yet it's still true. We've just got to follow God's orders exactly as he gives them, and we'll find that peace and happiness and contentment that God says that he'll give. You just obey God and let God figure out how it's going to work. Now, we read Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, everybody recognizes Hebrew le- Hebrews 11, I think, as the as the uh, uh, roll or call of the faithful. And there were things that happened in that chapter that are recounted there that simply do not make sense. Abraham had a son when he was 100 years old and his wife, Sarah, was 90. And Brother Dalton, if... God allows me to live to 100 years old. I promise you, I'm going to do my best. We're going to have a baby. I don't know if, if he wants us to have one, we'll do it. Noah had never seen rain, and yet Noah built an ark and saved his family. Moses led Israel across the dry ground through the Red Sea, and on and on you go. But you know, there's one more thing that the 11th chapter of Hebrews tells us. It also tells us that by faith, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But it also says something else there, that there was a harlot by the name of Rahab who lived on the wall, and the scarlet thread that was hanging from her window caused at the place where she was, that section of the wall stood intact, and Rahab was saved. Well, here's what we learned, folks. Your personal Jerichos will fall when you attack them with God's plan and follow God's plan exactly. The third lesson that we learned from this is that you cannot coexist with the enemy. Now, for six days, they marched around the city. Then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times. And on the seventh time, the priests blew on the trumpets. Now, if you look that up, in a Hebrew lexicon, you'll find out that the word trumpets there is the Greek word shofar. So they marched around the city seven times, they blew the horns, and then the walls came tumbling down. The Bible says they shouted. I don't know what they shouted. Somebody's asked me that for, what do you think they shouted? I don't know. Maybe they shouted shofar so good. I don't know. They might have shouted that. <laughs> but folks, do you know what the enemy's trying to do to you? What, what the enemy is really trying to do, he's trying to build a stronghold in your life. He's trying to put his outpost in your mind. And when he does that, he's in territory that does not belong to him. Now, just like Jericho was on land that belonged to the Israelites, when the devil starts to set up his strongholds in your life and in your mind, he's occupying territory that does not belong to him. This is the territory of the Holy Spirit. Your body, your soul, your spirit, they all belong to God. But what the devil does... He takes the weak areas of your life and he camps out there. He builds his fortresses just like Jericho, just like West Point, And he uses those things in your life as his base of operations. Now, it may be that bad habit that you have. It could be the temper that you can't control. Maybe it's a bad attitude. But Satan knows exactly where you are weak. And as long as Satan's strongholds are allowed to stay in your life, you will continue to run up against his walls, and you will be the one who falls flat. So how do you fight against this? What do you do about that? Well, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So all those areas of your mind that have been taken over by Satan, all of the evil thoughts that come into your mind, that some of those things that you act on, those are the strongholds that the devil has. And the Bible says that you have to tear those down. You have to bring all those into the captivity of Christ. You can't do it with physical weapons. It takes spiritual weapons and it takes divine power. And we're not going to read this right now. A little bit later in our study of Ephesians we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Christian warfare. But in Ephesians chapter 6 it tells us all about the weapons that we use. The sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. These are all things that God gives you to fight the devil. So you can't, coexist with him. Your habits, your addictions, your obsessions, all of those things have to be removed because if they aren't, they will hinder your spiritual growth. They'll stunt your spiritual growth. You have to get rid of those things. And as long as they remain in your life, you will not possess your Canaan. Now, here's the thing about Jericho. Joshua could not leave Jericho standing. I, you know, sometimes I wonder, why did God have Joshua crossed the river right at Jericho and take one of the very strongest cities that was there. Why didn't they just bypass Jericho? Why well, did they choose an easier route, go another way, start with somebody else, start with, with one of the other enemies and one of the other peoples and leave Jericho alone. Well, the reason that God had them take Jericho is because Joshua could not afford to have this fortified city at his back. He couldn't have that at his back and this other enemy in front of him because every time that he tried to do something, there's always that threat that's looming in the background. There's always Jericho that's going to send somebody out and fight against him, and it's going to hinder his progress in taking the promised land. So God says, you've got to knock down the walls of Jericho. And that's what God expects us to do with those strongholds that Satan puts in our lives. We have to knock them down. We can't live with that enemy in our life. Now, they would say, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we've got to fight against this. We've got to go against this. We've got to work against it. And Joshua knew that that had to be destroyed. Well, there's a good way that you can get a start on possessing your mind as you should or letting the Lord possess your mind so you fight the enemy. A very good verse for you to remember, is in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 8. It says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And Paul tells us to think on those kinds of things, because when you're thinking about those things, you don't have time to think about anybody, anything else. So these are some lessons that we can learn from this. I mean, we're talking here, and these first three lessons, that lessons that save people can learn. But I also think that there are a couple of lessons that we find in Jericho that lost people need to know about. So we're going to spend the next uh, few minutes talking about two lessons that lost people learn from Jericho. The lesson number four is that nothing prevents your salvation but you. One of the remarkable things about Jericho is this great fear that fell on these people when they heard about what God was doing with Israel. Well, it's not remarkable, of course, that they were afraid, but it is remarkable the kind of effect that it had on these people. They, they'd heard about what happened with Egypt when Israel came across the Red Sea. They heard about how a uh, The children of Israel went through the wilderness and every enemy they encountered that that God was able to defeat them. They heard about that manna that God gave, the provision that God was giving. And you would think that they would understand very clearly that they could not stand against this God. And so when Israel comes up to Jericho... What we would think is, knowing all this information, that now that they would be ready to surrender, they would say, well, we can't fight against this. This God is too great for us. What we need to do is just surrender our city, have all of our males circumcised, let's start to worship the God that Israel worships, and let's follow all the commands that Moses has given. But they didn't do that. Now, they were very afraid, but they weren't afraid enough to render obedience to Jehovah God. So we look at that and we think, well, how could that be? I mean, why would they do such a thing? And that happens over and over again as you go through the study of Joshua. The people had the same reaction. Isn't there enough evidence to show them that they can't possibly fight against God? Well, we would think that there is. But then we look at our situation today and we see today the very same thing. Tonight, an astronomer in America or somewhere around the world, he'll point his telescope to the skies and he'll look at all the galaxies that are out there he'll see the billions of stars that there are he'll look at this and he'll understand the the huge expanses of space the distances between all of these things that are out there and they'll start to compare that to this little bitty speck that we live on and they'll think wow isn't that something all of this just came into existence how did that happen And they won't think that there must be somebody who made this, and he is such an awesome person that I need to find out more about him. I need to know about him. But that's not what they do. In our country today and around the world, there will be doctors that study the human body. They look into microscopes and they see these millions of cells that are working perfectly together in in exact precision, And all the body has come together, everything functions like it's supposed to. We're able to breathe, we're able to think, we're able to be self-aware. And then that very same doctor, that same scientist or whatever, he'll conclude, oh, how wonderful that evolution is. That here the human body has defied all odds, all probabilities, and we have this magnificent organism that we call human beings. And they won't think about God. And if they do think about him, they outright deny that he even exists or had anything to do with it. Folks, God has put plenty of evidence out there for us. When Jesus came, he performed all kinds of miracles. The people admitted this can't come from anywhere but from God. And yet they still refused to believe in him. And what did they do? They ended up crucifying the Lord of glory. Well, what is it? What is it that keeps man from turning to God? Why with such evidence did Jericho fight against Israel? And why do we still today resist God? And there's only one answer for it. It's the nature of man. It's stubbornness, it's rebellion, and that keeps us from turning to Christ for salvation. Now, we talked about this when we were discussing the sermon on Rahab. Only God can change a person's heart. And the only reason that Rahab believed when all the rest of the people in Jericho did not believe, it was because God did something wonderful in her heart. Now, In our text verses in Joshua 6, God commanded that all of the inhabitants of Jericho would be killed and only Rahab would be saved. In verse number 21 we read, "...and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword." And there are people that would look at that and they'd say, well, how unfair is that? I mean, here God comes in and he tells the people to kill everything that's there. Get rid of it all. How can God do such a thing as that? But then we look and see how wicked that these people really were. These are people involved in human sacrifice. They're barbarians. They have no regard for human life. They're not much different than the Islamic extremists that we find around the world today that kill unmercifully the name of their heathen God. Warren Wearsby writes, Every wonder that God performed and every victory that God gave his people was a witness to the people of the land, but they preferred to go on in their sins and reject the mercy of God. Never think of the Canaanites as helpless, ignorant people who knew nothing about the true God. They were willingly sinning against a flood of light. And I would tell you that every single person who rejects Jesus Christ today is willingly sinning against a flood of light. There's no reason to feel sorry for people in this respect that they just can't know enough. There's just not enough out there to show them there's a God. Folks, there is abundant evidence throughout this entire universe that there is a God, and people need to learn that they must have a relationship with Him. Jesus said, He that believeth not is condemned. Uh, he that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's a warning to everybody that's lost. Don't trust yourself. Lots of people will say, Well Well, a little bit later, when I get older, uh, when when I've lived a little bit longer, then I'll decide, maybe on my deathbed, I'll decide that I'm going to turn to Jesus Christ and I'll believe in him then. Well, here's the truth of the matter. There is absolutely nothing in you at all that will ever cause you to turn to Jesus Christ. You can't put any stock in that. Don't depend on that. In fact, the thing to do is to plead the mercy of God right now. Because only God can change your heart from unbelief to belief. And now finally, we have one more lesson for the lost. And that is, number five, your sin is the fuel of hell. Now, if we go back to the text in Joshua 6, people marched around the city, trumpets blew, the people shouted, then the walls came tumbling down. Then Joshua went in with all the people and they killed all of the inhabitants But Rahab, all the inhabitants of Rahab, that is. But then there was something else that they did. And this is in verse number 24. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now, I think that we can draw from this a warning that judgment is coming. God's wrath is fueled by sin. The Bible says that God is wicked at the, uh, angry at the wicked every day, and if you just do this, if you take the sin away, then God's wrath goes away. But there are plenty of religious people today and the cults that are out there that are teaching people that hell is not real. There's no reason to worry about hell. There's no fire that's awaiting anyone. I mean, the very worst that could possibly happen to you is that you'll be annihilated. You'll just cease to exist. And there is no such thing as eternal punishment. And then there are more and more Americans today that maybe they do believe in heaven and hell. But they just simply believe that they're too good to go to hell. I mean, they're not going to go to hell anyway. Well, the Bible very clearly tells us there is a hell... And if you have enough confidence in the Bible to believe that there's a heaven, it doesn't make any sense at all not to believe the Bible when it talks about hell. Jesus talks about hell. In Matthew 13, he said, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The book of Revelation speaks about hell. In Revelation 20, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up. Uh, death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now let me finish with this statement for you tonight. God is patient, but his patience is running out. Now here's what you need to know about what's coming. God is patient right now, but his patience will only last so long. God's going to tolerate sin for only so long. One of these days, God's patience will be completely expended. God's patience will run out, and he won't be patient any longer. And those who reject the saving blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that they will be gathered and they will be cast into the lake of fire, and hell will literally burn... The fuel of hell is the sins of their lives. Hell will burn forever with the sins that they've committed. Now, there is a reality of God's judgment against sin. But I can't leave people with the thought only of the judgment that's coming because the Bible teaches us that God's wrath can be taken away. The fuel of hell can be taken away. And the way that it's taken from us is that hell is burned up with the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross of Calvary. When he suffered on Calvary, he suffered the hell for everybody who would believe in him. The hell that you would experience, Christ experienced that for you if you just believe in him. The Bible gives us the promise that was given to Rahab, And the Bible says that this promise was fulfilled. In the 23rd verse, it says, And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had, and they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And why was Rahab saved? It was because Rahab believed. And that scarlet rope that was hanging in her window was her connection to the God of Israel who saves by the blood of Jesus Christ. That was the picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the question is, do you believe that? The Bible said that's all that's required. You believe that, that the blood was shed for you. So there's lessons that we can learn here, lessons for saved people, and there's also lessons for lost people that are learned in the victory at Jericho. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, and I just ask you, Lord, to show us how we can make certain changes in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit that will help us to operate in such a way that we can defeat all of our enemies, all those who come against us, and we can stand strong in the hope that you've given. I also pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's lost tonight, they might understand the warnings that are also given here. Judgment is coming. There is a hell for all those who do not believe. But thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way that people can escape the fires of hell. If someone's here tonight and doesn't know you as Savior, lay it upon their heart to simply trust Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Speak to us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.